Now, I've told you guys, I shared a few weeks ago that this isn't my first rodeo. That's funny because I'm so young. It's not my first time teaching through the book of Revelation. And um, with that in mind, I've conducted some breakout groups in the past and diving into these different letters of the churches. And we're not going to do breakout groups tonight just because... We're so large, praise the Lord, I think it would consume too much time for everyone to share. But what I've given you, I would encourage you to take back home and to work on it and looking at those lists. I do want to talk through it really fast and just call our attention to a few things before we jump into our study this evening. handed out the copy I was planning to keep for myself, so I'm, I'm pulling up my copy right now. Real fast, just as before we get started, could I ask you all a question? We, we looked at the letter that Jesus had written to the church in Thyatira this morning. It wasn't all bad. So what were those things that Jesus commended the church for in verse 19? Does anyone remember? Revelation 2.19. All four. Love, faith, service, and patient endurance. And the question on that, the first question on the worksheet that I've handed out is, why are those so vital for spiritual growth? Why are those vital characteristics of spiritual growth? And this is a think question, so it's not really a wrong answer. Why why are those things important? Yeah, they help us to grow. Some of them are. Well, actually, no, all of them are, aren't they? Yeah, my bad. Um, faith is one of the fruit, is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. You have to be careful how you say that, guys, because... fruit. Yeah, I know, but when I started breaking it apart, anyways, faith is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. Love is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. Patient endurance, being long-suffering, that's part of the fruit of the Spirit. Well, which one am I forgetting? Service. Service, yeah, of course. That's a fruit of the Spirit. There's a saying in education, or there used to be, I don't know whether there's any anymore, that uh, kids will never, uh, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And that same, same thing is applicable in working to lead people that's a really good point. So Miss Carolyn, drawn from her educational experience, children will remember how much you care more than what you know, or they care more about. So say it again. They don't, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Hendricks is book, Teaching to Change Lives, I think uses a similar kind of 
turn a phrase. So, yeah, the, the, if we're going to be effective in service, well, we have to also embody the fruit of the Spirit and loving and being faithful, so that's good. And all these things are really related to one another because one can't exist without the other. And that's the point whenever we talk about the fruit of the Spirit biblically. These aren't different characteristics that sometimes we embody. The reason they're called the fruit of the Spirit is because that's the actual language that Paul uses when he writes about the fruit of the Spirit. They're not fruits. You know, I don't sometimes have love and I don't sometimes have faith and I don't sometimes have patient endurance. But if I have the fruit of the Spirit, all of these things are all-encompassing. Just like when I bite into a pineapple, it's not sometimes sour and sometimes sweet, but a good pineapple should be sour and sweet at the same time. And the fruit of the Spirit's the same way. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter. And really fast, before we begin, what I would like to look at is verses 11, really just verse 3 to verse 11. What are some of the characteristics listed there that Peter is encouraging the original audience to embody? Chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 11. Faith. Faith. Virtue, knowledge. Virtue, knowledge. Temperance, patience. You're going to knock them all out, Miss Sherry. Temperance. Everyone see where Miss Sherry's getting all of that in that list? All things seem to be pointing back to 2 Peter for me. The reason I wanted to draw your attention to this is our text this evening is going to come from verses 16 through 21 in that same passage. And this is really what I'm driving at. I want to try to connect some dots really fast and then we'll get into what I would like to share with you all from God's Word. And that is, the church in Thyatira is being accused of not being able to practice discernment and to exercise discernment. And as a consequence of that, Jesus is saying, I'm prepared to come to you and to make an example out of you for all of the other churches. That's a grave warning that should cause us to have a reverent fear for Christ and the significance of His Word. But I don't think that the application of that text is that we should run away from that and practice so much discernment that anyone that has any inclination of believing differently than we are accuse them of being heretics. This has been a problem for the American church. seems like we all just don't know how to get along. Oftentimes, R.C. Sproul has a quote I think is relevant. What the heck's wrong with you people? I don't believe that the church exists so that we could define doctrine so perfectly and so purely that we are able to define every mystery that God has given us. Rather, I believe one of the greatest joys that we have in the church is that we have the ability to contend, not from our own opinions, but from Scripture, what truth is. And a part of that process of contending is demonstrating charity, demonstrating love, demonstrating faith in Christ. And when you put all of this together, when it all actually comes out into practice, what you actually see is people growing in the way that they are rooted in the Word. The scariest thing that could ever happen in a church is we say, well, I believe X, Y, and Z. And when we say, 
well, I disagree with you on that. We're not able to defend why we believe X, Y, and Z. Now, is this a realistic fear that I have, or am I just making this up? It's absolutely a realistic fear. Because we're taught things by tradition. We're taught things by authorities. And if we do not grow up and allow the Word of God to be the only authority in our life, then the real question we should ask is, what is the authority? Is it what I've, is it, is it what I've been taught in the past? Is it what feels right to me? People use that language a lot today. Well, that kind of feels right. Well, that feels better. Well, I feel like that makes sense. When it comes down to it, God doesn't care how you feel. That doesn't mean He's uncompassionate, but when it comes to truth, it doesn't matter what feels right to you. It matters what the Bible actually supports. So looking at that, how are we supposed to pour pursue these characteristics that Peter has listed out? How are we supposed to make sure our salvation? Peter's actual exhortation in this entire book, this letter that Second Peter, uh, of 2 Peter, his actual instruction is to make sure your original salvation. To, to make sure means to not only prove it, but to be able to withstand contradictions, to be able to withstand persecution. The bulk of this letter mirrors the book of Jude, which we looked at last week, but if you look at chapter 2, it begins addressing this issue of false prophets that will come, and the entire chapter is about this issue of those that would come and compromise the purity of the church's teachings. Chapter 3 begins to introduce the day of the Lord and the hope and the strength that we should draw from looking forward to the day of the Lord that lays ahead of us. Chapter 1 tells us simply to confirm your calling and election by God. How do we do that? By pursuing life, godliness, knowledge, to virtue, to wisdom, uh, charity, all of these different attributes that we could list out, um, brotherly affection, all of these things that are listed in the verses that I drew your attention to a moment ago. And I, I would encourage you, when you go home and you look at this, don't be done tonight. That would be a waste of time. Do not expect that at any point that I will be able to teach you everything that you need to know to be a good Christian. I will fail you. I don't make many guarantees, hopefully, but that's one I can probably make. I will fail you at some point in time. Either I won't be there when you need me. I might err. Um, incidentally, I won't err on purpose, but... And you have permission to correct me if I do that. But the Bible's never going to fail you. How can we make sure our calling and our election? When we look at that list, I think one of the things that we can do is, is we can uh, pick some of those areas that we need to work on the most. Perhaps it's brotherly affection. Perhaps it's charity. And we can pray to God that He would help us to know what we are supposed to do. And, and in seeking the Spirit's wisdom in that, we, we should also be able to come up with some sort of a plan in improving that. As we look at, consider the book of Revelation, this phrase continues to pop up. He who has an ear, let him hear. 
We've not talked about that in, in great length because I think it's pretty cut and dry. Do you have ears? Then listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. This phrase has been repeated in each and will continue to be repeated in each of the seven letters that is recorded in Revelation. Those who hear God's Word must pay attention to it. This is the practical application of Jesus' both commendation, condemnation, judgment, and encouragement to the church in Thyatira. We must be careful to hear God's Word and to pay attention to it because it does not come from cleverly devised myths. Because it is more fully confirmed than the very voice of God from heaven. And because Scripture does not come from someone's own interpretation, but from men who have spoken from God. Those are the three points I want to focus on this evening. I'll draw your attention to 2 Peter. I'd like to read from chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, and then we will expound upon what that says. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no one prophesy. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Three reasons, then, why those who hear God's Word should pay close attention to it. Everything in this passage builds up to verse 19. Look at that for a moment. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Everything in this passage builds up to the fact that Christians in the New Testament, under God's grace, those who have placed their faith in Christ, have a more fully confirmed prophetic word. You see, the reason why we should give heed to what the Bible says as opposed to other things, is because what the Bible says does not come from cleverly devised myths. We look at verse 16, and Peter's argument to those that he is writing to is, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we were made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. In the apostolic era, the founders, those who built the church, and those who worked in the church, they were eyewitnesses to the things that were happening. As they testified to the works of Christ and everything that He did, they weren't giving outlandish stories. They weren't telling uh, things that would just make you feel good about yourself. They were simply witnessing. They were testifying about the things that they had actually seen. 
Clever concepts for God and how to worship Him may seem good. They, they might stretch our mind. They may even cause us to behave in a way that makes us a better citizen or more upstanding in the eyes of our peers. But they are not fully confirmed as the Word of God is. The Word of God is the only thing that can make such a claim about itself. I was having a discussion with someone not too long ago about uh, this was the claim that was put to me. Don't all religions ultimately worship God because, well, you know, we look out at the stars and we see the majesty that is before us and we recognize that there is a creator and so we pursue God? I thought, that's totally true. Romans 1 tells us the story that all things that display God's glory and majesty and His power have been plainly evident since the beginning of time. But Romans 1 doesn't stop there, friend. It goes on to say that man, thinking himself wise, became a fool in in substituting worship for the Creator for worship for creation. All roads don't lead to heaven. There is only one road that leads to heaven. There's a lot of good religion that makes people good people who are still condemned to judgment for their sinfulness. The one who has handed Scripture to us from the prophets in the Old Testament to the apostles in the New Testament They came by this not by looking out into the stars and and mystifying and coming up with all these ideas of God. They came by it by personal experience. Experience is a valuable way to know God. We have to be careful with that because there are people that will tell us that they have um, these kind of just ridiculous experiences and want us to uh, validate them as an authority. Experience is valuable, not as an authoritative norm, but as a validating norm. Here's what I mean by that. I would normally never tell you what I'm about to tell you, except that I need to use it as an illustration so you know what I'm saying. I came back from a meeting, and I was a little disheartened just with some of the attitudes that I saw. And just some of the attitudes that I was thinking about and phone conversations that I was having that week and different things that I was looking at. Because I recognize that this area, uh, this issue that, that Thyatira struggled with, with not being able to discern right from wrong that resulted in the church being compromised was evident amongst my friends and people that I care about. And what really got me stuck was I, I also realized that not only are my friends doing this, but I'm doing this. Don't we like to think that we know what's going on in our own thoughts? It's a humbling thing when we have to acknowledge that we're as much part of the problem as everyone that we think is the problem is. So I was sitting outside. Kids had gone to bed. And I was looking up at the stars. Because I like to look at the stars. And as I realized that, I said, God, I want you to help me be different. I want you to help me make peace with people that really have no business fighting because they're fighting over the same thing. 
and I saw a shooting star. I haven't seen a shooting star since I was a little kid. I think the last time I saw a shooting star was on my grandma's pontoon boat that she sold to my uncle whenever I was in the eighth grade. So that's how long it's been since I've seen a shooting star. Do I think that that was an authoritative sign? By no means. But I do think it was validating for me in that moment to say that God knew what I was going through. He knew where I would be as I was going through it. He knew what I would be thinking. And He would know that I was in the Spirit reflecting on these things, praying and seeking Him. And He gave me a validating sign which is happenstance. I don't think it's a miraculous sign, but he gave me a validating sign that comforted my heart in that moment. I said I would not normally share something like that with you, and here's why. It's not authoritative for you. It's validating for me. You can disagree with me of its significance all day long. It was validating for me. Does it contradict Scripture? No. It validated for me that I was heading in the right direction. That's it. Experience is valuable as a validating norm. Experience will never be an authoritative norm. We do not follow cleverly devised myths. We hear the Word of God because what we have is a more full, more full and complete word from God. Second, the reason why we should be careful and pay attention to what we hear from Scripture is because it is more fully confirmed than the very voice of God. And you guys are going to think I'm making this up. The very voice of God is less confirmed than Scripture. I'm not making this up. This is what Peter says. Look at verse 18. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. If the very voice of God were to echo in this room at this moment, it would not be as authoritative for Christ's church as the Bible. That's going to stretch your mind. How can I possibly say that? If we all heard a voice at one time, how could that not be just as authoritative as the Bible? Here's why. The voice of God, if it were to be audibly present, would be a special revelation to a particular people. The Bible is a special revelation to all of God's people from all ages. This is the authority. And as a matter of fact, if you want to get real supernatural and, and think about this hypothetical situation where a voice were to cry down, if I heard a voice, I would not immediately take it as authority, but I would, as John instructs in 1 John, test the spirits. Because the Word of God in such a special and miraculous revelation would never contradict the Word of God. So what would be my authority in that situation? The Word of God that I rely on to test the spirits. 
Some people get so obsessed with the supernatural that they think that this must be a more miraculous and more wonderful and therefore more authoritative. That is folly. That is the problem. That is what allowed Thyatira to fall into the trap of following the person who called herself a prophetess, Jezebel. That's what the church erred because she said this is a word from the Lord. Listen, friend, the word of the Lord will never contradict the actual word of the Lord. This is the authority we must come back to. Not special visions that people claim to have, but the word that he has already given to us, that he has preserved through ages. This is our authority. And third, the third reason why Christians should pay attention to the, when they hear the word of the Lord, why they should pay attention to it, is because Scripture does not come from someone's own interpretation, but from men who have spoken from God. I'll remind you, not only do we not follow cleverly devised myths, but this isn't an interpretation issue. The Bible comes from God's spoken word. Look at verse 20. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were. This verb here is amazing, and I wish you all knew Greek so you could see just how amazing it is, but I think the English doesn't all right. It came to men as God spoke. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is a word picture of what it means if you can imagine a stick being thrown into a flowing stream of water and that stick passing through the water as it's carried along. When we talk about the author being penned by human men and inspired by the Spirit of God, what we are saying is that those men were like the stick. That the stream of water was the Spirit of God that moved these men that caused them to write things the way that they wrote them, to choose the words that they chose. Every word matters in Scripture. What does it mean then that we can trust and that we should pay attention to the Word of God when we hear it proclaimed because it doesn't come from interpretation, but it comes from those who have spoken from God? It means that the Bible does not and should not become an issue of interpretation even for the church. Try this on for size. How often do we make the excuse, well, I don't interpret things the way that you do. I interpret it differently. How many valid interpretations are there of the Bible? There is but one. There's not many interpretations, just like there's not many truths. There's one real, true interpretation of Scripture. Now, I believe that there's some area where... um, There's valid interpretations where maybe we can't say with all the confidence in the world that that's heresy or that's not heresy. You know, there are several examples of that. I won't list any because every time I try giving you guys examples of that, you think I'm trying to cause a coup or something, but I'm not. So just at the end of the day, when we all get to heaven, we're going to find out who's right and who's wrong. The Bible isn't given to us so that we can have different interpretations and argue about it. There's a difference between contending and arguing. Contending means I sincerely 
want to grow in my faith. So as I come to you and I contend, I'm ready to be challenged. And I sincerely care about you growing in your faith. So I want you to be challenged and to grow. Arguing just means I want you to think the way that I think. One's foolish. The other one's not. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God to rebuke, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. When I look at that list, one thing's missing. Arguing. If we're reproving and we're correcting and we're training each other in righteousness, that's something that glorifies God. That's something we should pursue. We should not argue. Scripture itself isn't an issue of interpretation. It's not an issue that we would look up and, you know, I imagine all of these world religions that have come into being simply because God has revealed Himself naturally to all men and therefore all men stand condemned. By the way, that's not a comfort. That is our motivation for missions. That all men, all men, all women, all persons stand condemned because all things that could possibly be known about God have been made known from the beginning. And without the truth, they are condemned. I find no comfort in that anyways. That motivates me to be on mission. When we think about that, and it not being an issue of interpretation, we see the authority of God's Word. These weren't prophets that saw signs and interpreted them as I had done for my experience that I shared with you a moment ago. That was me interpreting something from my experience. That's not how the prophets came to the Word of God. It was given to them. It wasn't signs and things where they had to get out a calculator and open a special uh, Google Maps app on their phone so they could see the position of the stars in the sky and all these wonderful, you know, just nonsense, guys. And, and the reason I'm, I'm talking about this so much is there's a lot of it on Facebook right now. Some of you might even be watching it, and I'm warning you against it. If it's not the Word of God, it's not an authority. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Look back at... What verse is it? The middle of verse 19, I skipped over this a second ago and I want to come back to it. This more fully confirmed prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What the word of God is for us is it is a light that discloses darkness to us. And the fact that it's a more fully confirmed prophecy, more fully confirmed authority, here's what it means. When we talk about the Bible being a lamp unto our feet, we're not talking about a candle that you put on top of a birthday cake and then walk out into the woods and kind of guide yourself by this little wax flame. We're talking about a 20,000 lumen light that you have to wear a special shoulder strap to support shines brightly into the darkness. It illuminates all truth that we need because it's completely sufficient. In fact, this very idea of it being a lamp shining in a dark place 
And the reason I've come to 2 Peter, if you're putting all this together, I don't just choose these things randomly, but there's references here. When Peter talks about this lamp shining in the dark place, he also makes reference to this morning star that rises in our hearts. Do you remember what the blessing or the final encouragement was to the church in Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2? First, that we would rule with Christ whenever He comes to establish His kingdom on earth. Second, that He would give us something. What was it that He was going to give us? That's church in Ephesus. No, that's church in Smyrna. That's right, Brother James. He promises to give us the morning star. And I told you who this morning star was, didn't I? I said we need to look no further than the book of Revelation to understand what that's making reference to. That it's Jesus Christ Himself because the morning star we're told is Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 20. What does Peter say here? This light, this greater prophecy, this more fully confirmed word that He's going to give us until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. This is the illumination of the Spirit that comes with the more fully confirmed Word of God. This is the Spirit of God Himself dwelling in the believer and illuminating all truth for us. This is a reference, actually the first time that it appears, ironically, is in Numbers chapter 24. I say ironically because we'll remember the church in Pragamum. They were warned against the false teachings of Balaam. And Balaam's final prophecy, this is what he says, Numbers 24, verse 15. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed, Seir also. His enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. What is this more fully confirmed prophecy that Christians have today in the Bible as something that is more authoritative as the audible voice of God that we may claim to have heard? It is the star rising out of Jacob. It is Jesus Christ born in Bethlehem. It is the sign that the the wise men from the east followed. And it is Him who has given us His Spirit. There's nothing more important and more vital to the health of the church than depending solely on the Bible. Tradition may validate. Now, tradition might be used as a consult. It might help us to stay on the right path. I get it. 
Bible study's tough if we don't have a starting place. Tradition will help us with that, but it's not the authority. Experience will help us to know that we're on the right path. It might validate that what's happening is true. God might open doors through circumstance that give us comfort and peace in pursuing Him. But the only thing that is authoritative for the church, for God's people, is His Word. We get wrapped up in Bible studies. We might even avoid Bible studies, especially discussion-based Bible studies, because we're worried that um, it'll just become a time for dispute. The problem is you start a Bible study with the wrong attitude to begin with. The teacher or the facilitator. Sunday school classes, whatever it is, the teacher or the facilitator is not the authority in the room. In church... The pastor, the teacher, the preacher, they're not the authority in the room. The Bible is our authority. If we ever forget that, the church is destined to be like the church in Thyatira, drifting around and accepting and even tolerating false teachers. Scripture is inspired revelation, and we must seek to understand it in light of its original meaning. That's the key. If we really believe that the Bible's never going to mean something that it never meant, then we must seek to understand it in light of what it originally meant to the people it was originally written to. We can't redefine terms because... uh, What am I talking about? Let me connect this to the real world. I was talking with a couple that they're getting ready to, to be married, and we were talking about wives being submissive. It's a really popular concept in today's world. Wives being submissive. Everyone likes to talk about that, especially the younger crowd. And they said, well, submission, you know, I think this is what it means. And they tried redefining the term. I just backed up. What do you think it meant in the first century? I mean, when Paul's writing Ephesians chapter 4, he's talking about wives being submissive. And they're literally writing in a day and time where husbands carried the authority to to not only condemn their wives, but to have them executed if that was their will. What do you think it meant then? And they said, well, I just don't like that. I mean, that's so just pejorative towards women, and I don't think God's pejorative towards women. I said, you're right. God created men and women as equal image bearers. So, well, I just don't think it's fair. And I said, well, just back up a second. Because when you look at Ephesians chapter 4, I really think men get the short end of that stick if you really want to make that argument. Women have to give up their will. Men have to give up their lives. And women, if you find someone that's willing to give up their life for you, I don't think giving up your will to them is really too much to ask. There's a balance here, and it can easily be abused, but that's not the way God ever intended it. If the Word of God is our authority, and we seek its original meaning, then that should guide us into all truth. And and the way that we follow that is simply by trusting the Spirit of God that illuminates all truth. And why am I harboring on this point? I don't think this is the crowd that really needs to hear this message. There's a lot of people that neglect reading their Bible. They just neglect it. And they consider themselves good Christians. And they're wrong. 
You're never going to mature in the faith if you don't read your Bible. Ever. It's not possible. And they make the excuse, well, the Bible's too hard for me to read. Well, maybe you're starting off the wrong way. If you're going to read the Bible, then it must be through the lens that the Spirit is the one that illuminates truth. And I would argue, if you struggle to understand the Bible, if you find your daily time in the Bible unfruitful, you're not starting out in prayer. And if I'm wrong about that, come talk to me and we'll, we'll work through those issues and see if we can't identify the problem. But most of the time, this is what the issue is. Simply not starting out in prayer and asking God to help us to understand all truth. Any final thoughts as we close this evening? Did I miss anything significant in that passage? guys just ready to go to bed all right let's pray and be dismissed father in heaven thank you so much for this evening for this crowd lord i just pray that you meet the needs that are present here god i don't have to know them to trust that you're taking care of them but god i do ask that you be with these people that you bless them just supremely, Lord, with your, your peace and knowledge of you, that they grow in you, Lord. God, I pray that they would seek your face and that they would receive the blessing that comes from that activity. God, guide us. Be with us this week as we go on each our own way. Be with us in the workplace and in the world and help us to be a faithful witness for you. Bring us together again soon, whether in this place or home with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.